questions are on the screen. Pretty, pretty self-explanatory, pretty easy, and I think you'll be able to get those. Uh, so that should help us with our, our, our response time and our, and our conversation, discussion with one, one another as we, uh, as we uh, kind of explain and talk about the, the text and answer the questions and respond, and hopefully encourage one another as we, as, as we respond. And, of course, that'll be a big help to, to our, our brother Kenny as he leads you. Um, so we're back in chapter 8 this morning. Uh, so go ahead and open your Bibles there to uh, Luke chapter 8. And what I... Uh, didn't tell you last week, and I'm going to tell you this week is keys out of my pocket. Sorry. Um, what I didn't tell you last week is that uh, these passages, uh, ending all the way through the chapter eight, is is actually a, a set of three passages that are kind of showing us almost the same point uh, in in three different ways. I'm, uh, I'm going to call it a, a, a trilogy. All right? It's a trilogy of real-life events that happened in chronological order. So there's a, there's, a, there's a help there. And, of course, we know that the Gospels aren't necessarily always written in chronological order. right? I mean, the, the stories and the narratives and things like that, they have a certain thing that they're trying to teach us and show us about who Christ is and what's being revealed in the Gospel. And this is one of those trilogy of stories that show us very clearly the power and authority of of Jesus Christ, the, the, the power and authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so last week, as we read verses and studied verses 22 through 25, where Jesus calms the storm, you see that they get into the boat and they cross over the Sea of Galilee. And sometime in the middle of the night, or at some point, Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat, a windstorm descends upon them, and as we talked about last week, that windstorms on the Sea of Galilee are pretty uh, tumultuous and, and uh, dangerous, and probably the only thing that maybe those guys would fear is, is that kind of a storm to come upon them. Um, and it hit them, and they were at the point of death, and yet the whole time Jesus is asleep at the front of the boat. These guys were freaking out, and they weren't just freaking out on the boat because they didn't know what they were doing, as people like me probably would do, and maybe you too. Um, but they were experienced fishermen, experienced sailors, and they were freaking out because they were at the point of death, but Jesus was asleep. And so when they, they, they thought they were dead, they were at their last moments, and, and they thought we were just going to die, I'm going to wake up Jesus, and maybe he can just save himself. They cried out to him, Master, we're going to die. And so what we talked about last week, and I just kind of want to re-highlight this because I thought this was such a very important point and it would help us this morning in understanding the power and authority of Christ even in our passages this morning is that the disciples in their passive-aggressive indictment toward Jesus who's sleeping as they are in the midst of misery and death that is descending upon them. We said, we said last week that, that sometimes when we are faced with fears, when we're faced with the storms in our life, particularly storms of, of the fears of man, that it seems as if God is asleep, as if God is at the front of the boat taking a nap. And I can imagine the, probably the anger that these guys had toward Jesus who was asleep at the boat oblivious to, to our fear, oblivious to our misery. A few years back now, um, we, and I say that we corporately, and my family, of course, were challenged uh, through some difficult times, to say the least. Um, it, it seemed as if um, that everyone who could come against us and who could, could hurt us all at one time, it was almost as if they were released uh, to, to freely devour and destroy who come against us. And, and even though it was, you know, a couple months span, four or five months span uh, the, the, of, of turmoil, my, my prayer life at that time became very strong. I mean, very, very strong, trusting in, in the Lord and, and praying to the Lord and asking the Lord to, to bring healing, to bring repentance, to let the gospel go forth. I knew that that was the deepest need that was 
from where we were. So I prayed very strong things, trusting in the sovereignty of God. But as the pressure began to increase, my prayers began to shift. They began to shift almost like prayers that were found in the Psalms. Psalms of, that David prayed against his enemies. Enemies of the gospel, I would pray to pray against. And as they came down on me harder and harder, like it was the wind that night on the boat. And to be honest, I know how these guys felt. Uh, to be honest, I know how these guys felt because in those dark nights of uncertainty, it's easy to cry out, where are you, Jesus? Are you sleeping? Are you not hearing me? Are you not hearing my pleas for the gospel to go forth? Why wouldn't you want that? And of course, I realize now, excuse me, how foolish I was that he wasn't sleeping. He wasn't being neglectful toward me. He wasn't being unkind or unloving to me. No, the Lord was working. He was always working. He was always working. He's always been, been working. Working in my heart, working in my faith, yes, and drawing me and praying more and depending upon him. Working and building his church. But the only thing I needed to see at that moment, just like the disciples, was to trust and obey where there's no other way. So Jesus, by his very words to the disciples after he calms the storm instantly, where is your faith, was a question that engaged me, and it still engages me. Where is your faith, Ben? When I give in to temptation and sin, where is your faith, Ben? When I want to fear and doubt, I want to fear man, where is your faith? Why would you abandon all of your spiritual logic? But the disciples react to Jesus' divine authority not with exuberation and celebration, but with fear. The authority and power of the Son of God brought fear upon his own followers. And they asked, who then is this? Who is Jesus? So last week was the power and person of Jesus Christ, of the holy, divine, and guess what? Our passage today focuses on the exact same thing. The power and person of Jesus Christ. So remember the question the disciples asked back in verse 25. We just said it. They asked, who then is this? Who is Jesus? You know what Luke's doing? You know what God is doing through the gospel writer for us? He's answering the question, who is Jesus? Who then is this? He is the Son of God who has all power over authority, as we saw last week, over, over all of nature. And this week we will see his power and authority as it extends further. We get an answer to this all-important question. It all goes back to the purpose of the book so that we would have certainty in the person of Christ. Certainty in the gospel. Certainty of, of who he is. That we can believe and trust in that when the storms come, when the fear comes, we can trust him. So let's look at chapter 8. Starting in verse 26, we're going to read this together. In verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out onto, onto land, out on land, there met him a man of the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it seized him. He was under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to, not to command them to, to, to part into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, 
and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned it. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And the people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man at whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat, and he returned. The man whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus set him away, saying, Return to your home and to declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus, God Jesus, had done for him. Amen. May the Lord, by his Spirit, teach us this morning from his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So the disciples and Jesus, after they had a pretty exciting evening, crossed over to the Sea of Galilee, um, which was um, from one region, the, the area of Galilee was quite a bit a Jewish region. They crossed over the sea, over the lake, over into the Gerasenes, or if you look into the other Gospels, some of them might say the Gadarenes, same area, same place. Um, and uh, in this particular area, though, is mainly Jewish, uh, not Jewish people, but primarily Gentiles. Primarily Gentiles. The mission and ministry of Jesus goes to the Gentiles, even even this early in the ministry. I, I love that. I love that, and I, I wanted to bring this out early because I, I love the, the 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 idea and the fact that we see the mission of Jesus shift for just this moment that reaches to the Gentiles. What a, what a picture of the Great Commission that we have from our Savior. So this is just an, an amazing story. I mean, it's just a, an, an amazing story of, of incredible power of, of the Savior, and an amazing story of, of transformation, and we can see and we can hear why the Holy Spirit has inspired the Gospel writers to give us this story. You know, this isn't something that happens every day. You don't, don't see this happening every, every day. So we, we can't miss what's happening. So I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little early this morning. I told you the, the point and the purpose of all three of these stories, the trilogy of these stories, to show the power and authority of, of Jesus. And, and letting the cat out of the bag this morning, the whole point of this passage is to see that one thing is not to see the demons, not to see the pigs, or even, even this man or the townspeople, but to see Christ. We, we have to see Christ. This is goal numero uno for this morning. To see Jesus, who last week, the holy, powerful Son of God, controlled the wind and the waves because he wrote the very laws of nature into existence. This morning we are meant to see Jesus Christ in his power and authority, his glorious power over evil, in delivering the demonized man from once was captive to now liberty and freedom. Jesus has the power to deliver us from our miserable, sinful pasts, but also from our present sins, our hatreds, our prejudices, our loathings, our lazinesses, our lusts, our disappointments, our hurts. Don't miss that this morning. Don't miss that this morning. The, the power and authority of Jesus Christ to do that. Now, there are two things that people get hung up in this passage, though. Two very obvious things. I bet you could pick them out. I actually kind of said it. The demons and the pigs. People always want to hone in on there. Well, what about demons and demon possession and the little pigs, poor, poor pigs? And I think the same thing. Every time I read it, I'm like, man, what a waste of bacon and ribs. And Now, of course, the Jewish people, they had no clue what that is, right? And praise God. God has made all things clean, and we get to enjoy bacon and barbecue and things like that. Pork chops, grilled pork chops, fried pork chops, all those wonderful things. Make you hungry yet? Yeah. Amen. Amen. But this is where people stumble. 
This is where people stumble. In fact, I, I read of one guy who, who is an unapologetic unbeliever. I mean, I guess you can kind of call him an atheist. Un- unapologetic unbeliever. And, and he actually wrote a whole book, right? This is novelty, right? A whole book detailing from Scripture all the reasons why I cannot believe in God. Like, I don't believe Christianity is real. I don't believe that Jesus is the real Son of God. And he takes this story as like the height of his book, and he says, this right here is the pinnacle of why I can't believe Jesus. Now, you would think there would be better things, I don't know, maybe like the resurrection or something like that that they can argue with. But no. He argues that if Jesus is good, and if Jesus is sinless, and Jesus is the most virtuous one of all, if he is the Son of God, then why would he let these de- demons kill the swine? And it disturbed this guy so much that that's why he couldn't believe in Jesus. He was more focused on the pigs than the work and the power of God. But Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is drawing us to this extraordinary event this extraordinary event, right? I mean, amazing thing to see is to see this man who was once afflicted and uh, tortured by demons and yet was graciously liberated by the power of Christ. The only one who has the power and authority to set us free, to set him free from the enslavement of sin. So I have three things that I want to show you this morning from the passage. Number one, I want you to see the who and the how in being enslaved by sin. So that's the first point, enslaved by sin. The second point that I want to show you is the very heart of the passage, the thing I've kind of been saying over and over again because I want you to get it, is I want you to see our sovereign Savior. Right? That's my term I'm using. My, my so- our sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, who is fully on display in his marvelous grace in this passage. Who then is Jesus? He is our sovereign Savior who displays marvelous grace and salvation. And thirdly, lastly, I just want to show you from the passage the great change of this redeemed man who is delivered from the power of sin and death. So the first point, when we look at the detailed description of this unnamed man in the Gerasenes, who is probably a Gentile, mind you. For most of us, we would not look at this guy and read this story and say, man, I can, I can relate to this dude. You know, a man running around in the woods naked? Yeah, I can relate. No, you're not going to do that. Right? This guy was living naked in the woods, running around, and it wasn't like a TV show. It wasn't like this reality TV show. Living in the rocky cliffs and caves, places that were completely uninhabitable. They used it as a, a cemetery, right? Representation of evil, living among evil, dwelling among evil. He lived outside, always exposed to the elements, and he was so tormented. He was so tormented in his spirit, in his, his soul, he would wail out in horror. You go back and read Mark chapter 5, you see a much more detailed accounts of this man. And Luke gives us a horrific life of this man who wailed out in horror of himself, of, of the pain and suffering and the remorse and the sorrow for the kind of life that he is living. In fact, Mark tells us that his life is so bad and he feels so much pain that he begins to even cut himself. Does that sound familiar? Such a mechanism, right? This, as, a, as a mechanism for him to control this guilt and this shame and this deep, sinful limb style, lifestyle by numbing the pain with another type of pain. And no one could help him, could they? They tried to. They, they, they bounded him up. They tried to hold him down, but he would break free, and then the demons and evil would lead him right back out into the wilderness. No one could free him from his slavery. No one could free him or take away the pain. No, he was a man in deep bondage to these demons. And isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting that as soon as they cross the lake, what happens? 
this demon-possessed man goes right to Jesus. But not to ask for help. I mean, don't ask for help. What are they, what are they asking for? They go looking for, for, for Jesus. Isn't it funny how demons are drawn to Jesus? Why? Why are they drawn to Jesus? And they're certainly not going there to worship him. We see the same thing throughout uh, even the book of Acts in the church, particularly in Acts 19 in Ephesus. Demons are always aware of the work of the kingdom of God. They're always there. They're always trying to be there to derail. And I think that's what they were doing. They're trying to derail Jesus from his mission. But Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what he's dealing with and who is asked, who's there. So he asks them, what is your name? And, and how does the man answer that question? This, this, is, this is significant. This is something very significant for us because this man was so under the control of the demons that in, in a sense he has lost all of his own identity and his personhood. He lost it all. He didn't even know who he was. And, um, in uh, Tolkien's, J.R. Tolkien's classic books, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, there's a character who looks a lot like this guy. His name is Gollum. And Gollum becomes enslaved to the, the, the power of, the, of the, the one ring. Becomes enslaved to it. Becomes a, in, controlled, mastered by it. Must have the ring at all times. And throughout these books and throughout these stories, he's at the pursuit of trying to get back the ring that told, turned him into this horrific-looking creature who lived in the woods, who could have been naked, Right? And the movie almost gets there, right? And, and naked in the woods, living among tombs, controlled by the, by the ring. But he hasn't always been that way. He hasn't always been this, this, this distortion of a person named Gollum, but he was Smeagol, a, a, a hobbit that once had life, that once lived among people and wasn't in restraint to this life of slavery to the one ring. I'm pretty sure that this is what Tolkien was thinking about. This man and many others who are possessed by evil and sin and death when he created this character, Smeagol or Gollum. And, and even though, you may, you may have read the books or seen the movies, but even though we know Gollum is actually working the whole time for his own purposes to get the ring back, but can't we feel, isn't there in points of the book or even points of those points of the movies where we feel kind of compassionate, we feel bad for him? In fact, that's one of the lessons that Frodo learns from, from, uh, from Gandalf. Are we not too like him? Because we can sympathize. We can sympathize just a little bit, this enslavement. And the answer that they give to Jesus is not a name. It's legion. Legion's not a name. Some people probably call their kids legion. Or, well, it's stupid. Right? Legion is a, a, a size of a unit of military force. The Roman legion was generally around four to 6,000 men. Now, let's not get hung up on numbers. We don't know if that's how many demons, and who cares? We just know that there was a lot of them. It means that there was a multitude of them. In fact, they went and, and, and possessed 2,000 pigs. In fact, I think that's what Mark says. Mark says this actually gives us a number of 2,000. There was a lot of them. This man had no identity, no name, except being possessed by an innumerable amount of demons. So when it comes to demons, I want to be very clear on this. There is no power, there is nothing, no, no power in this universe that can cause any rational human being to sin. There's nothing. There's nothing. Demons don't have that much power. Every single one of us are responsible for our sins. And so no demonic force can take control of a human and make them sin unless they allow it. But once you open the door to sin, once you open the door to, to evil, we see from this passage the outcome, the length that it goes. That they're not there for his good. They're there for his destruction. And that's what sin and evil wants to do in all of us, is to destroy us and make us just like Gollum, make us just like the man of the Gerasenes. Miserable. Tortured. 
He was in complete enslavement to his sin, and he was completely unable to change anything about his circumstances. He was owned and mastered again and again. Now, I understand that the Gospel of Luke here is showing us an extra, unordinary circumstance. He's showing us something like a, like a really far to the, to the side, right? These things that we don't see very often is this extra, unordinary case. Not to shock us or to make us afraid of demons, demons like they're trying to get us or they're hiding underneath every, every chair or pew or whatnot. But the intent of this passage is to show us that even in such extreme cases like this guy, we get to see the power of Jesus Christ over demons and also the power to free this man and to transform him from the power of enslavement to life. Even though we may not be possessed by demons, ruled or mastered by them, but if we are ruled and possessed by what we want, by what we have, And if we want and have is not God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we too are just like this man, enslaved by our sin with no real identity of our own, but only known by what we love in our hearts. Slaves to our own desires and possessed by our emotions and our urges. Most people wouldn't call themselves, call that slavery. The Bible is very clear that the heart of mankind is in slavery to their desires. They're enslaved to their desires, and all men outside of Christ are enslaved and captive to those desires. What do you love, brothers and sisters? What do you have that you are captive to, that you are enslaved to? What is it that you cannot live without? It's not every day that we will meet someone like this guy who is demon-possessed by so many. But understand this, that every time we meet an unbeliever, a Christless soul, you are meeting a person who is completely captive to their desires and their sins. And just like this, and just like this man, they, they too are completely helpless and unable to free themselves from it. And here's the crazy thing about people. And if you're able to observe this, then you're going to be able to understand what I'm uh, getting at. Everyone is trying to escape and free themselves in one way or another. We know this. We we know this in ourselves. We We just are so enslaved that we can't see. So we turn to other things to try to solve or try to get us out of this or numb that particular pain or whatever it is or guilt, and we turn to other pleasures. Or we're just like this man, crying out and cutting ourselves. But the end is still the same. Slavery. Slavery. Even slavery to the things that we believed would set us free. Certainly to be possessed by a multitude of demons is is, is extraordinary. But he's actually a living testimony to everyone who is enslaved by sin. And that we are or were not much different than this unnamed man. I know it's a bleak picture. It's a bleak story. You think about, I mean, it's a bleak story in the very beginning. No, no hope at all. Hopeless, impossible for that man or for anybody to help him. Unless the one man who crossed the lake the night before, unless he is who he says he is, is able to do something. And that's my second point, the sovereign Savior. I know we use that word a lot. And I want us to use that word a lot, the sovereign. Number one, I want you to know how to spell it, because it's a very important word to spell. To know, how to, to know, how, to know what this word means is so important. It's not just our name. It's not just in our songs and in our, in our sermons. I don't want it to become white noise to you, almost like another junk drawer word. Oh, Lord, let it never be. Because this word, when we, when we use it to describe God, has such, a, such deep and, and long extended meanings to it. 
the more and more that we, we teach on it and we see it in this, this scripture, then the more and more this word should be ever expanding in our minds and in our hearts to see and believe who God really is. That He's sovereign. And in this passage that we're using it today, He is our sovereign Savior. He is our sovereign Savior because He clearly shows an, an unequaled power and authority over evil over these demons, over Satan. When Jesus encounters these guys, these guys go straight to him, and they are frightened by Jesus. They are terrified. This is almost a trilogy of fear, almost, isn't it? They are terrified of, of Jesus. So think about this for a moment. I want you to think, grasp what's going on here. The demons who were tormenting and torturing this guy, this guy hated these, these demons, but he could do absolutely nothing about it. His life was miserable. The people all around, they knew who this guy was. They were fearful of this guy because they seen what he could do. Busting chains. You ever busted a chain? Never. I've never done it. Maybe I can one day. They busted chains. God, these guys were scared of them. And now the ones that were giving everybody the scare is now scared of who? Jesus. Why? I mean, think about that. I mean, I mean, look, think about that. Jesus just walks right up and boom, they're scared of him. They come completely underneath the sovereignty of Jesus. Why is that? Well, they, they know who Jesus is. I mean, we, we see their confession there. Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. They know who Jesus is. They know his power and authority. They know who casted all things into existence and creates all things into existence and holds everything up by his omnipotent hand. They know who that is. They know who they're staring at. And it didn't matter if he was in the flesh or not. They knew who they were looking at. And they also knew who would bring their end. That who would judge them. Who would cast them into the, into the eternal lake of fire in the final judgment? Matthew actually cues us into this idea that they knew this because in um, what is it, uh, 829 they say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? It's almost the exact same thing that we read in our passage. O Son of God, have you come here to torment us? That's where Luke stops. But Matthew adds this particular point, before the time. Before what time? Before the final judgment. Are you here to, to cast us out and kill us and destroy us before the final judgment? This is why the sovereign power and authority of Christ terrifies them. Why they are in such fear. Bad news for them. Good news for us that he is our sovereign savior. Good news for us. We can rejoice because he's not just Lord over the wind and the waves and and over the demons, but that he is also Lord and Savior over everything. Listen to me. He is sovereign and Savior and has all power and authority over everything that can captivate us. Think about that. There's nothing in this world that you are enslaved to or can be enslaved to that isn't already under the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ. All things are captive to him. Even all the, the forces of, of darkness are nothing. They are small. They are afraid of him. Why? Because he is utterly sovereign. And all of the, the sin and temptations that we, we face are maybe given over to all those things that we think are so difficult to overcome ourselves. And you're right. It is too difficult for you to overcome. All these things that we think is captivating us or captive, keeping us captive, Christ has already conquered. Christ is already victorious over. And our victory is not our victory, it's Christ's victory. We take on His victory. He is sovereign over what captivates you in your sin. What are you struggling with today? What are your fears? What are your doubts? He is sovereign. There is not anything that is underneath His feet. It is so bad for the demons that they beg Him. They beg him. And think about how bad this is. They beg him, just let us go into pigs. Right? Pigs are unclean animals. We like them. They didn't. They go into unclean animals. And he gives them permission to do so. And when they went into the pigs, 
for some reason or another, who knows? They went into a frenzy, the pigs wigged out, and they went over the cliff, right into the lake. Now, I don't know why Jesus did this, right? I can't, I can't answer that question. I, I can't explain it, or, or, or I, I can't explain why the demons had to go into something else. I mean, why couldn't they just leave? I don't know. No, I don't know these things. And I don't know much about demon possession except for what the, the Bible teaches. I do know that if you do find anyone who may think they know about demon possession, you might want to walk away from them. So, I don't know what Jesus is doing here. But I do know that I can trust the Lord Jesus, that he knows what to do with demons, doesn't he? One, one possibility, and this is just speculation, so just I thought it was helpful, so I'm going to tell you. So one possibility is, is maybe Jesus is kind of painting this, this image off into the distance, and you kind of got to stare at it to figure it out. And, and, and maybe this is a picture that Jesus is painting for us, almost kind of like this reversal of the fall, right? This is just, I thought this was neat, so I'm going to share this with you. This reversal of the effects of the fall in the garden. So Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve as a serpent. Right? Who did God give authority over the animals? Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, what? They subjected themselves under his authority that he exerted that he didn't have over them. Right? So, there's, so understand this, right? There's an animal that exercised authority, tried to rule over them, and boom, sin. But Jesus brings almost a reversal here. Kind of looks like a reversal. He takes the pigs the unclean animal, to carry the host of demons to their, to their doom. So hence the, the reversal. Jesus is using animals, the authority that he has, to now exert authority over evil. Why? Jesus is the better Adam. He is the better Adam. He is the Adam that should have been and was. And he carries them into this final judgment. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's no accident that they run into a lake. And then John describes their eternal judgment as what? Being cast into the lake of fire. Maybe, I don't know. Sounds good, though, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds pretty good. It wasn't mine. I picked it up from somewhere else. But that's pretty good, isn't it? I thought that was pretty cool. What a, what a neat little picture maybe that's happening there. All right, back to the text. Back to the text. All right, so as I said earlier, some, some may find this event a stumbling block, right? They may think, oh, Jesus is being mean to pigs. Jesus doesn't like animals, blah, 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 right? And, and what they're forgetting, what they're forgetting about our sovereign Savior that is very crucial for us to understand is this. The first thing is God is sovereign over all nature. We saw that last week. He's sovereign over the, the pigs. In fact, Jesus himself says what about the Father? He says that the Father even cares about the sparrows that fall. He cares for every sparrow that falls. All of his creation, he cares for. But what does Jesus say after that? This is the second thing. What does Jesus say after that? He says, but what's more important than the sparrow? How much more does your heavenly father what? love you and care for you? So what's greater than the sparrow? Man, us, God's creation, us. So, I mean, isn't that a point that has been lost on our world? Isn't that the effects of the fall? Just an absolute rejection of humanity is treated like a waste. And we must preserve every bit of animal existence. Oh, how that has been lost by our world. But also in, in the midst of the pigs, don't miss what so many have missed, including the people of the Gerasenes. This is what they missed about the sovereign Savior, is they missed the liberated man sitting in front of them. A man that was not only from, from the torment and suffering under, uh, under the, the demons in the merciless hand of Satan, but also they missed the grace of God that was extended to this man. They missed this man who had once he was eternally separated from God, but now brought near. That's why we like to say, but God. The worst of circumstances brought into new life. God showed love and grace to this man who was in captivity to sin, who didn't deserve to be free, who didn't deserve to be forgiven, and was completely and utterly helpless to do anything about it. 
that Jesus did. Brothers and sisters, that's why we use the word sovereign grace. That is sovereign grace. That is sovereign grace. You see Jesus fulfilling his purposes of sovereign grace, proclaiming liberty to the captives and setting at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus is our sovereign Savior. Does that encourage you this morning? Do you delight in that this morning? Is that your joy this morning? The radical change of this man is my third point. We see this man's heart set free, redeemed, and delivered. I love that, redeemed and delivered. And at the beginning, remember, think about this guy's circumstance, right? I mean, we would call him certifiably insane. Running around naked, living in the cemetery, possessed by demons, didn't even know who he was. But look at him now. Look at verse 35. Look at him now. Look at verse 35. It says, Then the people went out to see what happened. And they came to Jesus, and they found the man whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and were afraid. And they were afraid. Now look at verse 38. It says it again. The man whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away. With no name, with no identity, except to be known by legion, enslaved, is now called twice the man who the demons had gone. What was his new identity? Saved by Jesus. His new identity. I am saved by Jesus. I am saved by grace. John Newton wasn't around back then, but he probably would have sang Amazing Grace. But it goes even further. He has, was given this new identity to live, being delivered from, from darkness, but also he is given this redeemed nature this redeemed nature. No longer crazy, no longer out of his mind, running around naked, living in a cemetery, and tortured, and yelling out, and cutting himself. But what is it? He's in his right mind. He's clothed. And he's talking. And he's, he's talking. He's talking with Jesus. He's completely unrecognizable sitting at the feet of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, who else can do such a radical change in the nature of man? Jesus. She didn't know the answer to that question. Jesus. And, and, and who else sits at Jesus' feet? Who else sits at Jesus' feet? Disciples do. Disciples sit at Jesus' feet. They humbly listen intently to every word that their master has to say. He was utterly a changed man. You might even say he was new. Paul had something a little bit to say about that. He understood what it meant to be made new, a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is it? The old has passed away, and behold, the what? The new. The new has come. And I don't know if this verse, I mean, I, I couldn't, I can't think of another verse that would describe this guy than that. The new has come. The old has passed away. But also, brothers and sisters, not just for this man. This is the case for everyone who trusts in Christ as their sovereign Savior. He makes us new. And he frees us from the captivating sin that enslaves us and keeps us in bondage. He is given a new identity, a new nature, and his desires have changed. Look, where, where did he want to be? He wanted to be not only at Jesus' feet, but he wanted to be with Jesus. His desires changed. He wanted to, to be with Jesus. In fact, he begs Jesus to be there, right? He begs Jesus, Jesus, let me, let me just stay with you. I want to stay with my, with my, my Savior. 
I love what Jesus does here. Jesus sends him out. No, dude, you go be a witness of the good things that God has done for you and the good things that I have done for you. Show the world how you have been transformed. Show the Gerasenes and the Gadarenes and show the Gentiles how you have been changed and transformed. You know, I hope, and my prayer has been this week, that at some level you can relate deeply with the salvation and grace that has come to this man. Because you too have been given such grace that you have been changed and that you're no longer dominated and captive to, to sin and that you've been set free because of the cross. I hope that you can see the link here. It's the very core to be set free. That to be a disciple and to be set free is then to go tell others. It's to tell others of what God has done in you. We have not only been saved from the enslavement of sin and death, but we have been saved to something. We've been, we've been saved to freedom, and that freedom we have to proclaim Christ. So what fear can we have, even in proclaiming Christ, if we have been transformed? But the contrast, we're almost done, but in contrast to the the once demon-possessed man, we have the tragic response of the people who came out to see what was going on. It's a tragic response because it was completely different than the man. They don't beg to sit at Jesus' feet. They don't, they don't want to be with the Savior. What did they do? They begged Jesus to leave. And, and here's what's really chilling. I mean, let this just sink. Jesus does. gets in the boat and he leaves he doesn't sit there and beg them please love me don't you know I came here for you don't you know I'm knocking please love me no he gets back in the boat which I'm sure the disciples didn't want to get back in the boat for a while but they get back in the boat and they sail across the lake verse 35 tells us why they asked him to leave fear they were afraid Fear, again, just like the demons were afraid of Jesus. Why? I think this was a fear of the holy, once again, the things that they, they've seen, but also a fear in, in the, the losing of what they loved. And what they loved, they lost. They lost their poor, precious pigs. Just like the man I said earlier who had a hard time believing Jesus because of this story. He responds the exact same way that the Gerasenes respond. This is what we do. The things man will trade to reject the greatest of all love. Rejecting what, is, what, what has changed the man. So what's going on? What's, what's going on underneath this passage? Why would, why would people respond this way to Jesus? I mean, it would just make perfect sense to us that if Jesus is there and they see this, they would just bow before his feet. And sometimes we see that, right? But why? Why did it, why did it do this? Why did the, the poor bacon have to drown in the lake? Well, the answer is, a few, back, a few verses back, if you think back last year, before Christmas, we looked at a passage in Luke 8, verse 16. In verse Luke 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 16, it says, No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under his bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who may enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known to come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has the more will be given. And listen to this. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. What did they think they have? What did they love? Their piggies. The things that they thought was giving them life, giving them comfort, their, their self-preservation. And God shows his authority 
Nope. They're mine too. And he takes away. Because all things belong to God. All things were created by God. Nothing we have belongs to us. It all belongs to him. There is nothing in our universe from the brightest star to the smallest uh, molecule that God does not declare mine. We are only stewards of his stuff. He gives, he takes away. And this is the problem with the people here, is that they loved what they had, and they loved their possessions instead of loving the man and seeing the Savior. Brothers and sisters, we can be captives to the same things. This whole story is a picture of what Jesus talked about and taught us back there in chapter 8 earlier. The parable of the different soils. You see, you don't have to be demon-possessed or demons to be around to be faced with the same kind of situation. Are you the man? Are you with the man who was set free from sin and evil, who trusted Jesus and then begs to be at Jesus' feet and to be with him and to be his disciple? Are you with him? Or are you those? Or are you still with those who love what you want and want what you have more than what you could have in the word of life, more than what you could have from the one who can give life? You see, we are in the same story. We are in the same extraordinary story. So I ask, are you like the man liberated from sin, begging to be with Jesus, begging to follow Jesus? Do you believe that he has set you free from all that has captivated and enslaved you? That he is sovereign over all? That he is the sovereign Savior? Or maybe this morning, you're more like the people. Do you prefer your self-love and your stuff and your self-preservation? And if that may be the case, may the Lord give you grace to set you free from that bondage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again. Thank you for your inspired word to teach us about a great and glorious, wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the extraordinary salvation that you brought to this man. Thank you for the new identity that you have given this man. Thank you for the new nature you gave to this man and the new desires that you gave to this man. Thank you, O oh God, that that is the same salvation that I needed. And by your grace, you have done so. Help me, help us all, O oh Father, to desire to be at your feet, but to go and tell of what you have done for us. To go tell of the goodness of Christ. To proclaim your glory not our own. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.